Do we have any questions about common and efficacious grace? So common grace mm -hmm. is what God has done for all men. Right. We say efficacious. Right. Um, what does that mean? Uh, efficacious means effective. And it just means that when we believe in Christ, that the faith that we have which, which is really nothing in the sense that it has with it no power in and of itself. But that faith, for it to be effective, God the Holy Spirit must do something. He must do something. So suppose a person believed in Buddha. Could they be saved? No. No. And why? Buddha's not the Savior. He's not the Savior. And... God the Holy Spirit would never make believing in Buddha effective for salvation. But he could. He could. Obviously that's not what he's going to do, but he could make believing in Buddha effective for salvation. What would, so your believing in Buddha doesn't make you saved. Your believing in Christ doesn't make you saved. It is God who saves you. So you're still in a lost position when you say, I believe in Christ and you're looking up and you see the Savior you're still in a lost state who saves you it is God God the Holy Spirit he turns this around in your life and he he makes that decision of faith or dependence on Christ effective so that you are in fact saved that's why we say common and efficacious grace well it, it happens for every single person who, have, who has ever believed on the Lord Jesus Christ they can have, how you doing? They can have eternal life. How can that be? It is because of the work of the Holy Spirit that God provides. Common, He enlightens everybody. Efficacious. Once that enlightenment is done, He makes that salvation effective. He makes believing effective. That's a, a interesting uh, thought when we think about that. He makes it effective. So the efficacious part is what God has done on behalf of the believer who has believed. Right. And then, so, so in, in essence, once we hear the gospel or are enlightened to it, that's common grace, the Holy Spirit makes our decision effective. Because just because we decided to make a decision for Christ, that doesn't mean that carries any weight. Right. And in reverse salvation, it does. People look at it that way. They say, well, I chose Christ. I believed in Christ. Therefore, God, you know, that means something. You, I got you by the tail now. Right? Some people look at it that way. Or you can say, well, how did you get saved? Well, I invited Christ into my heart. Okay. You invited, you did something, so that's what made it, your salvation effective? You did something? You invited Christ into your heart? No. Salvation is effective or made effective by God the Holy Spirit. He's the one who does it. Your faith. It doesn't matter what you say. Now first of all, those things are the wrong thing to say. Because you don't invite Christ anywhere. You don't tell Christ where to go or what to do. He tells you, come to me. Right? And we can have salvation if you come to him. So we, we have it reversed. And actually, we're, we're going to the verse where it is reversed. So we'll uh, see why people say that. So hopefully that explains what it means for salvation to be effective. We need that, don't we? 
who you know it's it's almost like God who is the one who uh, uh, is the God of science right? we talk about science from the standpoint of uh, scientific laws we say uh, that if you put uh, sodium along with chloride w w what do you have Salt. <laughs> salt. <laughs> so you have salt. And it's Na, which is sodium, and Cl, chloride. You put those two together, why does it, it crystallizes into salt? Now, now, either one of those by themselves, we don't eat. <laughs> we don't eat sodium, and we wouldn't t dare eat or in, inhale chloride. We wouldn't do it. It's, but together, it's salt. And I'm sure some of you had some salt today. So what's the principle? How come when you put this and this together, it creates, it binds, and it creates salt? Why is that? Where does the power come from? Nature? So it's not powers that be. <laughs> Who set that up? God. It just automatically happens, right? No. God is the one who designed the universe to function the way it does. And he's the one who upholds that law so that every time you put sodium with chloride, you get an ACL or salt. That's, that's, you can't control that. You don't support that. You may say, that's a scientific law. But you didn't design it. You don't have anything to do with it. God is the one who is faithful in every time, every case, he makes that chemical reaction happen. And, and in the same way, when a person puts their trust in Christ, anybody, I don't care who they are, I don't care what religion they belong to, I don't care what, uh, where they are in the world, if they put their trust in Christ, what happens? God the Holy Spirit, again, makes that faith effective for salvation. There is no ifs, ands, or buts. It always happens, and you can depend on it. So we know that. So, so this is part of just our understanding of the process of what the Holy Spirit does in our salvation. We're getting ready to explore another process. It's a good thing Bill came up with that question because guess what? You guys are getting ready to be tested. <laughs> so it would it just to get warmed up. So we were going to be tested on what exactly is common and efficacious grace. I erased the board so that uh, nobody can cheat. And now we want to. Bill did that was a good question and it helps us to uh, understand but hopefully you guys have this the scriptures down and you're able to understand and begin to think according to common and efficacious grace so if somebody asks you how how exactly does a person get saved you know tell me in detail you can go to the detail the very the bottom line detail and tell that person exactly the mechanics of salvation let me tell you exactly how it happens how much detail do you want well, you got it. It's right here. Through common and efficacious grace. How does it happen? From the, from the Holy Spirit dealing with the sinner, the unbeliever, on the most basic of terms, you have it. Common grace. That's how he begins the process of saving you. First he has to enlighten you. You're dead. All right, so what's the next one we're going to talk about? This leads us right into the next one, which is... Um, I don't want to ask you guys. It's regeneration. Because there's so many. It could We could pick anyone. 
this is regeneration of the Holy Spirit. So we want to, what is regeneration? What's the first thing we want to think about when we think of that? What is regeneration? This is really a the theological term. What do we just commonly call this? Being born again, right? Or born from above. That's, you're going to find that if you look at the, the words, they have that meaning. Born again or born from above. So, the next thing we want to think about is, since it's born again, we, we already know what our physical birth is like. What an analogy we have there. We can, we can certainly make analogies for our, the life we have and the life that we are going to have. So, you... How'd you get it, this life that you have? Anybody, can you tell me? How'd you get it? Which life? The life that you currently have the now. The born-again life? Or the, 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 the life I'm looking at. Soul life. Soul life, yeah. How'd you get that? God breathed it into you when you came out of the womb. That process is called... Birth. birth. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's called is birth. That, is that a theological term? Birth? <laughs> yeah, that's pretty simple, right? Simply put. So, we were born. And when we were born, we were born into Adam. That's, that's the life we have. So, we have Adam's life. We share the same kind of life he has. We're born into Adam. And everything else that is associated with Adam, we, we, we have. His death, right? In this way, death spread to all men. Where's that found? Genesis, what? Where? Romans. Romans 5. And where? Where in Romans 5? we got to own this stuff. This has been known to us. 5.12. There it is. 5.12. There it is. 5.12. Therefore, just as sin entered into the world through one man and death by sin. In this way, death spread to all men for that all have sinned. That's important for us to keep that in mind. We know the position we, we find ourselves in. So we're in death because of Adam. And that's the same. We have his life. We have the death that he inherited. The dead life, we should say. We have that as a, as a matter of birth. How'd you get it? You were born into that. So now, if we want the new life, we have to be born into the new. There's no other way to get into the new life. Unless you can think of another no other way. You have to be born into the new life. So we a couple of scriptures we can throw at you. Let's look at some documentation for the new life, for the fact of the new life and how it hap actually happens. Okay. So documentation. First we're going to look at John 1, 12 and 13. And then we're going to look at John 3, 1 through 8, let's say. Maybe more, but that's enough for now. Uh, we'll put the other scripture up there for those who are writing. It is 1 John 5 and 1. We're going to discuss a couple of these passages. Let's look at John, just the book of John, chapter 1 and verse 12. 
we're talking about regeneration, what the Holy Spirit does. Once a person is enlightened, once he has heard the good news and he understands his, 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 the bad news, he's heard the good news, he puts his trust in Christ and that person is said to be born again. We'll, and this reverses something. We'll talk about what it reverses. Uh, what is important for us to know that we no longer have spiritual death once we are born again. So John 1 and verse 12. I don't have the NIV, so I'm going to depend on somebody else to read it. 1, 12. Yes. My translation says pretty much the same. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, why does it say, but to all who received him? Because in the previous verse it says he came to his own, his own people, and his own people did not receive him. They rejected him. So then he, he tells you the opposite side, but... To all who did receive him, some did believe. All the Jews did not uh, reject Christ. But the ones who did believe, what happened to them? Who believed, uh, but to all who received him, I'm sorry. Received is the opposite of rejecting. So this is why they use the word receive. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. But to, but to all who did receive him, right, that means people who did not reject him. So we're not to really take this verse and go around saying to people, how do you be reconciled? you got to receive Christ. And people are left with that. Well, what does that mean? Well, you receive him. How do you receive him? Just open up and let him, and just receive him. So, so they, they, they neglect to tell you how exactly to receive Christ. It's important. you got to know that. So, it's, it, this verse is not here for you to take this and make it an evangel. You're supposed to know that receiving him is just the opposite of rejecting him, if you read it in context. Well, those who rejected him, well, what happened to them? Right? Uh, he came to his own, they, his own did not receive him. His own people rejected him. Well, some did receive him. Some did not reject him. So, so which ones are those who did not receive him, who did receive him? And it says here in verse 12, who believed in his name. Who believed in his name. That's how they received him. They believed in the name. Then the word name, the word anima, is the Greek word for name. And the, and, and the word name doesn't just mean like your name, like Delshawn or Demoy. Right? So if you believed in just a name, you know, what that is to say is, you know, uh, something is in that name, you know, and you know who, do, who which uh, group, which denomination does that? Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> they want to, if you believe in the name, and they're focused on the name, so I point out to them that uh, the Greek word here does not necessarily just mean name, it also means person. So, if, if I'm talking about my person, me, I may use name, and, and name even in English, also means person. We use it both ways, don't we? 
So if I say you have destroyed my good name, what what did you write it backwards or something? What what did you what did I what did you do to destroy my good name? You destroyed my character, my person. You impugned me, right? So we use it the same way. The Greeks use the word anima in the same exact way. So when you believe in the person of Jesus Christ, that is salvation. You can say the name Jesus all you want. You know, I hear people talking about there's power in that name, the name of Jesus. What are they referring to? So they just say, Jesus, Jesus. Thinking, you know, by them saying it emotionally and, and spirit, you know, filled, you know, that's going to somehow move things. You know? And I used to listen to those records, uh, Andre Crouch. There's power in the name. Just say it. Say it with me, y'all. No. Jesus. Jesus, right? And we just keep saying that over and over until we're hypnotized. There's no power in the name of Jesus. The power is in the person who is Jesus. That's where the power is. Now that's no lie. There's power in that person. And if we're saying name that way, that's what it means. There's power in the name of Jesus. Who are we talking about? Anybody named Jesus? <laughs> I know some people named Jesus. There's no power in their name. So you see what I'm saying? We, we got to make sure that we're focused on the right Jesus. And then guess what we find later? That some people are running around talking about Jesus, and it's not even the right Jesus. They're talking about some other Jesus. And where do we find that? Right there in 2 Corinthians. They're talking about Jesus, all right, but not the same Jesus you're talking about. So it is specific. You got to believe in this person. There is no other name given under heaven by uh, where, whereby we must be saved. What do you mean, no other name? There's no other person. Who else paid for your sins? A whole bunch of people, or just one? One person paid for your sin, and that's who he's referring to. So you got to have the right Jesus, the right person, and then when you call his name, it means something. But it has nothing to do with just you shouting the name and being emotional about it. The power is in His name, not in you shouting it. Not in how you say it. Not in how loud you say it. it the power is in that person. That's where it is. So those who received Him are the ones who believed in His name, in His person. And, and watch this. Look, let's go a little further. We'll just see if we can dissect this verse. He gave the right. He gave. Who's He? That is God. God gave the right. The ones who put their trust, believed in, depended on, relied on for their soul salvation, Jesus Christ. Right. God gave them the right. And what's the right here? That, that word right. Uh, I, in the King James, it always said the power. And, and people like that. He gave us the power to become sons of God. Well, the word actually is better translated, just like it is here, right. Does the NIV say right? Yeah. Because that's what it really is. It is a right. A right is a privilege. And privileges, the rights come with certain privileges. You know, the right of birth comes with certain privileges. The right of uh, having a driver. I always give the example of you have the right to have a driver's license. You can drive. You're able to drive, okay, which is, and that comes with certain privileges. Now that can be taken away, 
But if you have the right to become a son of God, then that's not going to be taken away from you. That's something God has given to you. And you're born again. You're, you, well, it didn't say born again yet. We're coming to it. Uh, but these, these are the facts. Just like we talked about NACL, salt. When a person believes in the, per, in the name of Christ, the person of Christ, they will have eternal life. There's no doubt about it. Uh, and this is true of anyone who does it. So God does something for that person. He gave them the right to become something that they were not. And, and that is children of God. You have the right to become a child of God. Now, you think that right comes just because God says, okay, you know, I'm going, I, I see that you believed in Christ, therefore you now have been conferred the right to, to be called a children of God. Now, that kind of sounds like you just have something conferred on you. But are you really a child of God? I mean, really? Or are, is this just a title that we have? See, because some people, when they talk about children of God, they don't really mean that they're children of God. They mean, well, that's just what I'm called. But I'm really just a human being, and, you know, God favors me. Which is it? It is really just this. See, because you're not a child of God unless God creates you as a child of God. Yes, there's something that has to, there's power that has to be expended in your behalf in order for you to become something that you are not. Can you make yourself a child of God? No. What about if you work real hard and do all the right things? What if you look at children of God and do all the things they're doing? Just imitate them. You know, like it says, like, it, what would Jesus do? <laughs> you hear that? What if we just did what Jesus would do? Can't we just be children of God? It's as easy as becoming a bear. <laughs> it's easy as becoming a bear. <laughs> and, there, and there you have it. It is a problem with nature, right? You, you, you can't decide you're going to be something. We don't have the power. I, if, if that were the case, I could just decide I want to be God. And we could just dispense with this whole Adam thing. I could decide I want to be in Christ. I want to. I don't want to be in Adam anymore. We don't have the power to change our status, and it says it clearly. Can an Ethiopian change the color of his skin? Can a leopard change his spots? And neither can we. We can't change. That's not within our power. That's like when people say, "Yeah, you're saved, but you can walk away from salvation. You can just turn your back and go back to what you were before." You don't have that right. God has not left that within our hands. We, we are not our own, says the scripture. If, if we were our own, then we could maybe make some choices in this regard. But first of all, even when he created us as human beings, we can't just morph into whatever we want. And that would be interesting. It would be like TV. TV, you can do anything you want with special effects and animation. But when, in real life, nobody's changing into anything. You ain't, you're not going from a, a pig to a lamb or a dog to a lamb or a lamb to a dog. You don't have the power to do any of that. What, is your, what are your choices? What, are, what, the, what choices do you have, actually? We have the choice of being saved. Right. The only choice we have, really, is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ whereby, we, just like you said, we will be saved. Or we reject Him, and we will remain in condemnation. That's only only choice. 
whatever results flow from that, whatever they are, I don't care, whether it's being born again, efficacious grace, all this other stuff we talked about, or we will talk about, are just results. And God does all those results. He's the one who's in charge of whatever happens after that. You don't control it. You don't become a Christian by how you, whatever you do is not about what you do. It's about what God has done to make you something that you were not. Now that's important to note. So we're in 12. He gave them the right to become something that they were not, to become children of God. We'll talk more about that children of God later. Now we're going to, he goes and describes it. Let's see, see what it says. he says about it first. Verse 13. Children uh, who were born. Now, who, who has the NIV? I just want to stay on the same page with you guys. Children born not of natural descent, nor human decision. Okay, let's, let's hold on right there. Children born not of natural descent or of a human decision. Now, okay. So, so here's what we become. Uh, and here's the first right that we have to be children born. And, and remember, we just talked about life and how we get into it. It is through birth. So just as we got into this life through birth, if we're going to have a new life, if there's any other life that we can share or have, it has to come through birth. And here it is. God caused us to be born alive into something. And here we are, children of God. Born not, not of natural descent. In other words, it didn't have anything to do with um, physical means of um, birth. So we, we're totally outside of the physical uh, realm. And we know all about the birth process. And it has to do with um, the, you know, all of, we've discussed all the details of birth many times. And we're not going to go into them at this point. But we know all the physicality that deals with birth. And then it says not of... Um, um, or of the will of the flesh. Okay. So the will of the flesh or man, what does the NIV say? Um, for your husband's will or born of God. Okay. So a husband's will means of the flesh or a man. Uh, it didn't have anything to do with you willing to be something or somebody who uh, looked out for you and willed you to be a certain thing. And I, I, I kind of liken this to how some believe that you can baptize infants and they'll be saved. You know, this is why they do it. They baptize the infant. And so really, whose will is that? Is that the child's will? No. The child doesn't have any idea what's going on. But it is the husband or the parent's will that this child be saved. So what do they do? They baptize them. Thinking that this will um, this child will now be a part of the kingdom of God. But not so. It doesn't have anything to do with anybody who wills anything for us. It doesn't have anything to do with um, physicality of a, a man and a woman, a natural pregnancy type of uh, situation. It has to do, it says, but they are born of God. That's important to note. Um, and it says, let me just read it in this one. Who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now what does it mean to be born of God? Now God, is, is He invisible or visible? We don't see God, right? So our new birth is not going to be something 
that we necessarily see with our physical senses. It's going to be something we see with our spiritual eyes. Go to John 3, which is our second verse, and we'll talk more about what it means to be born again. Well, I like John 3 because it compares the physical with the spiritual. And we need to have that comparison because uh, it gives us the depth of understanding of what it means, or, or at least that we need to perceive the spiritual. And Nicodemus came to Christ and he wanted to discuss spiritual things. But Christ told him, hold on. You can't discuss spiritual things until you're born again. Let's, let's pick up the story in verse 1. Now there was a man, 3-1, of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So the first thing we have is just Nicodemus coming to Christ, and he's, he's a very important man. John points that out. He, he is part of the ruler, uh, ruling council of Jerusalem, which means he was probably uh, in the Sanhedrin. Was they, not only were they spiritual, but they were political rulers of the people. So Nicodemus was not just any old body coming to Christ. He is somebody... Um, that John considers important. He, he's, he's somebody of note, let's put it that way. And so he comes to Jesus at night. Now, that can't be a mistake that he comes at night. There has to be some embarrassment or uh, timidity for him to actually appear at night. Some people have said, well, he was so busy during the day he couldn't have time to come. You know, busy doing all the things he had to do. He had to wait till it was over. Well, if somebody, somebody like Jesus, let me tell you, he would have interrupted his schedule. Wouldn't, wouldn't, if you had something to do, if I had to go to work, I'd say, you know what? I'm going to be late because i got to go see. I heard Jesus is down. He's down <laughs> at the corner. I want to go see what he's talking about. i got some questions. I would do that. I can't imagine Nicodemus, wow, I'm busy praying. I'm busy doing all these things. But here is somebody I know is from God. I'm going to wait. And why does he come under the cover of darkness? He doesn't want to be seen. And if we continue to read the book of John, it bears that out. He is. One time he spoke up and on Christ's behalf. And what did they say? Who are you? What are you, one of his disciples? You know, they got really snappy with him. And later we can trace it through where um, uh, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they both were very prominent men, but they both were believers in Christ, I believe. And you can trace through John. Even down at the end, Nicodemus still was on the side of Christ. So I believe he was positive. He was um, want, wanted to know doctrine. He, he was interested. The Holy Spirit had been working with him through common grace. He had seen these signs and he had been reading his Bible. And now he's coming to Jesus by night. And he's still a little embarrassed. But at this point here in John 1, John 3, he, we can't... Oh, I wouldn't say he's a believer. Yeah, I wouldn't say he's a believer, but he's certainly interested. So, Holy Spirit's working with him, with him in common grace. And common grace is bringing you to the point where you are enlightened about the true issues of the gospel. Now, this meeting is not just by mistake. And a lot of times, you guys meet people and you're thinking, I'm just, I'm just here. 
you know, I'm not really um, supposed to be here. This is not destiny. I'm just here. And they're over there. And then all of a sudden you're having a conversation and you're giving the gospel. You think that's just a mistake? God the Holy Spirit has been working in the hearts of you and the other person trying to arrange this meeting. And that's what happened here. Jesus knew he was going to have to deal with Nicodemus. First thing he tells him, um, first he, let's look at Nicodemus is impressed with Christ. He says, I'm sure. We know. Others knew about it. So not only did they know about Christ, but it, just like in Romans, where it says, even though they knew God, they suppressed the knowledge of God. They didn't want this to, you know, to be true, so they suppressed it. Even though they knew it, you can read that in Romans 1. But here it says, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. And it says, we know others were there too. And, and how does he know that? He says, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Jesus said, of myself, what could he do? Nothing. So obviously, that was what you were supposed to know, that God is working through this person. If I'm up here doing miracles, things that you've never seen anybody do, you're going to have to say something. Wow, some, this man has some kind of power. That's undeniable. I cannot just walk away and say, he has no power. Because the things he was doing was just totally outside of the natural order of things. The man walked on water. The man healed. People were blind from birth. The man grew withered limbs back. I mean, anything you can imagine. He even raised the dead. Somebody would have been dead four days. There's no way that you can construe that. Look at that and turn aside and say, well, I'm sure that's happening every other day. It's not. That's not happening. It is a, a miracle. Something outside of the normal occurrence of things. And it gets people's attention. And people and Nicodemus does this. He says, we know. And, and no one can do these signs unless God is with them. So here's what Jesus says to him. Well, you know, Nicodemus, it's not too hard. You know, I just do these things. And, you know, he said none of that. He could have just patted himself on the back. He says, yeah, that was pretty good what I did with that uh, blind man, wasn't it? And that Lazarus trick was pretty good. He could have just, you know, took Nicodemus, he could have just played into... Nicodemus, how did you do that? Let me tell you how it works. You know, none of that. Christ sidesteps the whole thing and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There's a limitation. When you talk to people, you ought to know that there's a limitation in place. And do not forget, just because you know we're saved and we're on this side and we understand spiritual things and we understand about salvation, don't forget where you came from. And where did you come from? You were spiritually dead. And you could not understand one thing about the gospel. All of us were right there. And somehow when we get on the other side and we get down the road a little ways, we forgot that guess what? We came from spiritual death. And we have less tolerance, little patience for people. And they're straining. I know, what are you talking about? And we just, how come you don't understand? I don't understand why you don't understand. It's plain as day. You see the nose on my face? 
Well, it's just like that. We, we say things to them, undercut them, make them feel like, you know, they should have known this. And, well, Nicodemus should have. We're getting to that. But in reality, we have to always recognize that there is a limitation. And it is not imposed by that person's intelligence. Just think about that. That's the first thing we want to do. What's wrong with that? Something's wrong with them. They're just not smart. It's not a matter of intelligence. Just keep that in mind. It's not intelligence. What is it? It's a spiritual matter. You're trying to introduce to them spiritual things. And you're trying to introduce it to people who have no spiritual eyes. It's like you're talking to a person who's brain dead. And he doesn't hear a thing you say. You look at the EEG and it's just straight across. No movement, no activity at all. And here you are holding a conversation with him. And you're wondering why he doesn't answer you back. Well, I asked him two, three times that same question. Am I not clear? Does he, what's the problem? The problem is there's a limitation that is imposed. Don't forget that. It's a spiritual understanding. These things. So here it is. Uh, Jesus tells them, you cannot see. See here means to perceive, to understand, to comprehend. Now for smart people, that just goes right over their head because they think they got everything. They done figured every angle. They done, they, they're smart. They done thought circles around you. They look at you up and down and realize, oh, this person, I know where he's from, what he's doing, what can he tell me, nothing. They just dismiss you. But here, I don't care. They cannot understand this. They cannot. It's, no, it's not for you to be arrogant over them, but it's, it's your job to try to enlighten them. Sometimes you've got to break down those walls of pride that they have and that they think they know these things and begin to share with them the simple gospel. Oh yeah, I already know the gospel. I already know. You know I was raised in church. You know I went to Sunday school. You know I went to Bible college. You know, But you still... All of that learning, you don't know the gospel. He was an educated man. Was he not educated? Was he not somebody? He was. And yet, he did not know the simple gospel. He was lost. And should he have known? He had every opportunity to know, didn't he? He was not only one of the ruling council, but a teacher himself. Now, just imagine, you got teachers out there who have no clue. You know what that is? That is the blind leading the blind. They're not saved, and yet they're trying to tell people about something they have no clue about. This is a reality. It's happening all around us. So we want to be, be careful to make sure we, we pay attention to these distinctions of who can see, who cannot see. A person who, can, who cannot see, I don't care what, they cannot see. Jesus is saying, you cannot see it. You cannot perceive it. You cannot comprehend it. You cannot understand the kingdom of God. It's a spiritual matter. It's a spiritual kingdom. How in the world are you going to see it? You think it's some kingdom where people are fighting and there's a war and it's taken by force? No. It's not that kind of kingdom. Remember Jesus before Pilate? He said, so you're a king. Jesus says, yes, for this reason was I born. But my kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. It's not even about this world. If it were, you know, if it was like you're talking about, well, my servants would fight and I, would, I wouldn't be taken. But it's not that kind of kingdom at all. 
Jesus did fight, but in the spiritual realm. Just when everybody thought he was defeated, when he was at his lowest point, people said, yeah, got him now. He's on the cross. Yeah, he's, he's suffering. Satan, let me twist the screws in a little bit more. Let's, let's really make him suffer. You're a son of God. Huh? Okay. So at that very time was the time when, when Jesus was triumphing over Satan, defeating him. Right? That was, it was when our sins were judged in Christ. And all that was God's will. And Satan did not know. I love it. He used the wrath of angels to praise him. It says he uses the wrath of man to praise him. But here, it's also the wrath of angels. God takes that strength and he uses it against them. It's like in that karate when somebody comes at you, you use that force against them. Not that I know how to do it. But I know it's done. Right. So, God... You cannot defeat God. Who, who here has tried to defeat God? Nobody. But Satan has. And now you saw the greatest display of power. Satan's the most powerful angel. He's the most powerful creature that comes from the hand of God. One of the most. And yet, he couldn't defeat God. What chance do you have? None. Right? So here... Nicodemus, does he understand what Christ is talking to him? We're in verse 3 now. Jesus, well, we're in verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, and this is a question that comes from a man who's spiritually dead, under the wrath of God, doesn't understand anything about what Jesus is talking about. He says, how can a man be born when he is old? Now, just a minute. How can if he would have stopped at that point, it would have been good, right? He'd have been done, because Jesus could have said, "Oh, well, now you're getting to Nicodemus. Let me show you exactly." But Nicodemus continued, "Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born?" Now he blew it, because think about it. He was on the right track. Wait, wait a minute. I'm old, and you want me to be born? Let's think about that. Let's just stay right there. But no, he took it to the next level. He says, "Well." Do you mean I go back into the womb and be born all over again? Is that what you're talking about? I'm sure you had great respect for Christ. But to a, a, a person who um, doesn't understand spiritual things, Christ just said something pretty silly. You've got to be born again? Born again? You mean I should go back into my mother's... How can, I'm old. I'm big. That's what he said. <laughs> You mean go into... Ah, Christ. Now, I know. He, he was nice, I'm sure, because he respected Christ. And you could see by the way he answered, he asked the question. And he wasn't like, oh, that's stupid. Don't, don't say that thing. Please, don't say that. You know what? It's just exactly what it says in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural man cannot re receive the things from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Foolishness. That's foolishness to a man. What is, that's a foolish answer, isn't it? You know, what are you saying, Christ? Go back into the womb and be born again? You think somebody ever did that? Where did he get that from? How could he even pretend to think that that was what Christ was saying? But that is the mind of the unbeliever who cannot see spiritual things. See, and that's why you have to always remember when you're talking to people, just like it says, the spiritual man judges all things. But he himself is judged of no man. See, you could see around, you could see circles around him. 
But he can't see circles around you because he can't understand where you're coming from. Not even a little bit. But you, on the other hand, oh, you you see exactly what... Now, we look at this statement, it's like, it's ridiculous. Why would he even go there? Because we're on that side of the, of the spiritual enlightenment. But to the natural man, born again, how's that happen? How do we get to that? Right? So, so here it is. Jesus has to answer him in verse 5. And this is what he says. How much time do we have? Oh, we got a little bit more time. Truly, truly, again, Nicodemus, I say to you, unless a man is born of the water, of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He reiterates, unless this happens. Now what is he talking about happening? Being born again. Now people see that water and what do they think? Baptism. Right in their mind, they start singing, Take me to the water. Right? That's what they want to start getting. Well, let's get baptized. That's what, so in other words, they got a salvation that you got to have water baptism plus you got to believe in Christ in order to be saved. There are some people who have taken it from this verse and others and have come up with this uh, salvation of water baptism. It is no water baptism here mentioned at all. None. None. It's not about that. It's about being born. See, what are we talking about? What did Nicodemus just say? He just said, do you mean go back into the womb and come out again? That's what, is that the kind of birth? Christ says, listen, Nicodemus. Truly, truly, let me tell you the truth. Unless a man is born of the water, right? Physical birth, let's get that out of the way. The water represents physical birth, Nicodemus. And the Spirit. And he already talked about the Spirit. That's what he means by born again, born from above. This is not the physical birth. See, you've got to have both. You've got to be born of the water, physical birth, and of the Spirit. You cannot. If you don't have both, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You've got to have both. Now, a person that just has one, it's not enough. Right? So Nicodemus says, well, what do you mean? Go back and do the first one again? No, Nicodemus. Go back, and, and you have to be born from above the second time. You have to be born, first of all, of water. That's one birth, physical birth, what you are aware of. But now you have to be born of the Spirit. Born of the Spirit. If you don't, if you don't, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, it is important that, like it says in John. Now, we could skip to John. I don't know how much time we have. I can just quote it for you. It's in 1 John 5. And talks about Jesus and the testimony of Jesus. It says, this is the one who came by water and by blood. You ever read that? So I'm hoping everybody knows that that verse is in there. Because what does he mean when he says, this is the one who came by water and by blood? He's talking about Jesus is real. He was born. <laughs> some people were saying that Jesus is some ethereal being, some hybrid being, some, you know, you know, he, he really didn't have a body like ours. He wasn't really like us. You know, that's Gnosticism and all these different isms that had crept up after the resurrection of Christ. And, and so John is letting people know, no, Jesus is real. He was born. He didn't just show up, you know, and, and, and was here walking around. He was born in Bethlehem. 
He was born into the human race. That's how you get into the human race. And the blood represents that he died. See, if he didn't die, if his death was, was, was feigned or fake, then it was all a sham. But no, Jesus literally died. That's what he means by he came by water and by blood. He was real, just like us. Right? He bang his nail, his hand, his hand with the hammer, he's gonna bleed, just like you. He, he's, he's a real human being. He had to be made like unto his brothers in every respect, except for the sin nature. Hebrews, Hebrews chapter two. So now, here we find this one. It says, um, "Unless he's born of the water." He's talking about physical birth. Why would he talk about physical birth? Because that's what Nicodemus was talking about. He didn't have to go there if Nicodemus didn't go there. He who was, uh, which is born of uh, water and a spirit, uh, or he cannot enter. Let's go to verse 6. 6 is the further definition of 5. That which is born of flesh is flesh. What do you think that's referring to? Physical birth. Why are you talking about that, Jesus? <coughs> Because Nicodemus went there. Right? He has to explain it because Nicodemus is going to such a base level. Nicodemus, understand this. That which is born of flesh is flesh. Right? Understand that. But, but, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. I mean, a spiritual birth is something that is not physical. We just covered that in John 1. But here you're seeing it again. It is not physical. Some people want to say they felt it. When they got born again, oh, all this weight just lifted off of them. And all of a sudden, they just felt light as a feather. And all of, you know, you hear all these testimonies. Now, that may have been true for you. And your emotions made you feel that euphoric. Because you've, you maybe understood something. But, but believe me, salvation is just simply a spiritual matter. Now, if you were elated because you understood that spiritual matter, great. I'm glad. But it is not seen or felt, the new birth. The results of it may be experienced, but initially it is not seen or felt. So that which was, is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Why do we need to be born again in the first place? Does anybody know? Change the nature. We need a change of nature? That People in the Old Testament were born again, but they still have the same nature. Uh -huh. Why is that? We'll come to you there. Well, our identification with Christ's life is going to be later when we deal with the baptism of the Spirit. That identifies us with His life. See, under, at, there's two Adams. There's one Adam who everybody is born in, and we're all in the family of Adam. And then there's Christ, which is the last Adam, and people, who are, whoever is saved is in the family of the last Adam. That's who the federal head of, their, uh, of the race of uh, born-again people are. But to, for us, in this age, we're not only in the family, but we are united. To the person of Christ. That's the baptism of the Spirit. We're going to cover that later. But what were you going to say? Well, when you said born again, I was, I was thinking to be born again is to be able to, be able to, uh, to, be able to see the, uh, the truth. 
we can see, so we can so we can understand spiritual things. And why do we need to do that? We can go to heaven. Okay, but why? Because <laughs> we're dead. There we are. <laughs> I asked the question, why do we need to be born again? Because we are dead. Dead people need this. If we, if we don't have this kind of life, and even the life that you're talking about, Jewel, the life that you're talking about, and, and you as well, we need it because we didn't have it. That's why we must. Jesus said you must be born again, or you cannot see the thing. Or you focused on the see part. You focused on the life. And you focused on another aspect of it, but really, we need this because we don't have this life. We're dead. And so what happens is, being born again reverses something that is a result of Adam. What is that? Spiritual, spiritual death. In this way, death spread to all men. When that spiritual death hit us, right? what reverses it, what God does, what the work of God does in reversing that death is called regeneration. We need to be born again. And it is the new birth. I'm going to say the new spiritual birth. You ever hear people talk about, uh, when, you, when you talk about uh, Adam to some people, and they say, yeah, and Adam all died. That means we all physically die, right? That's all it means. We're going to die, right? That's it. There's nothing else to it. So they don't ever see the spiritual side of it. They only talk about the physical side. They say, yeah, well, let's, Adam died, didn't he? He says, day you eat the fruit, you'll die. Well, I said, well, Adam didn't drop dead. Well, he started to at that point. <laughs> no matter what you say, they always focus on the, the physical and not the spiritual. Why is that? When you look at this, look at this new birth. Jesus says to this man who is alive that he lacks something. <coughs> man wants to talk about spiritual things oh tell me about the miracles tell me about the signs and wonders let me let's talk Jesus says before we talk I'm not going to be able to share anything with you because you're spiritually dead so and when Adam died that broke his fellowship with God also that yes spiritual yeah spiritual death means separation from God in fact death is always separation uh, spiritual death is separation from God in time uh, physical death is separation from your soul and spirit separated from your body. Absent from the body, away from the body, be present with the Lord. That's physical death. Right. Every death is a separation. Uh, we talk about positional death, right? Where it says, what? Know ye not that so many of us were baptized? We died, right? How can we who are dead to sin live any longer in it? What does it mean? It means we are separated from our sin nature. Everywhere we see death, it is always a separation. There's operation. There are seven deaths, remember? Operational death, right? temporal death. Right? And we talked about three already. So, but, And it's always some sort of separation. Spiritual death, separation from God in time. What are the limitations? Well, can't understand spiritual things. Can't comprehend spiritual things. Right? You are... Still in Adam, and you receive, and that separation was because of what Adam did. That's why you receive spiritual death, not because you sinned and now you, God, it basically caused you to be dead. It's because of what Adam did. We're already separated. So that's what the Holy Spirit does. He's enlightening us to let us know what our true condition is. So now we can put our trust in Christ and become saved, born again. 
So being saved is a synonym for, uh, or actually a, a result, let's put it that way, of, of salvation. Being, uh, being born again is a result of salvation. Let me say that a different way. So people talk about, um, I want to be born again, right? How can I be born again? You ever, then there's a group of people running around talking about, we're born again Christians. What, what kind of Christians are other people? Are, are they, they're not born again and you are? Is, what is exactly being born again? Well, that means we don't just have church. We really, you know, whatever. And they got these things that they emphasize about, uh, you know, who they, you know, we, we're really holy or something. Or these are the works that we do that let us, you know, we... But none of those things have anything to do with being born again. It has nothing to do with how you act. Now, did any of you have anything to do with your natural birth? Are you sure? Are you sure you didn't do anything? What, what did you do? It's almost silly to ask that question, because where were you? <laughs> you, didn't have, you, weren't, you didn't exist. And when you're, when you're dead spiritually to God, you don't exist on the work scale. There's nothing you can do for God as a dead person. It's just like going to a cemetery and asking them to do something for you. <laughs> Who's out there? Hello! And you hear your echo back. Hello, hello. There's nothing they can do for you. If they're dead, then they're dead. And, and then you're dead to God. There's nothing God can do for you. There's nothing you can do for God other than cause you to be born again through your faith in Christ. If that doesn't happen, you're not going to be able to serve God. You're not going to be able to pray to God. You're not going to be able to do good works, be obedient. None of those things. All those are results of being born again. So people run around talking about, wow, you've got to be a born again Christian. I know you're just a Christian, but you've got to be a born again Christian. Boy, I don't know. What, well, let's be nice and say, let's just avoid those people. Because the Bible says, mark those who cause divisions and teach doctrines that are contrary to the ones that you've learned. Right? They are those who serve their emotions rather than the, the true God. So avoid those people. And maybe you can give them some scripture to show, well, what exactly did you do to become born again? So you're saying that by your behavior, you are now a born again Christian? It doesn't make any sense. So note that the, the death that we have from Adam is reversed by this new spiritual birth that Jesus is talking about. That which is, he makes it clear to Nicodemus that the physical is one thing and the spiritual is another. So now we know that what happened in Adam was, what's the most important thing? The spiritual aspect of it. Because guess what? The resurrection is not a big deal. Well, I say not a big deal. I mean, everybody's going to be raised, right? Physical death is going to be reversed. But if you don't have that spiritual life, when you are resurrected, it is not going to go well for you. Nah. So it, what's the most important thing? The spiritual. You better be right with God in the spiritual life. You're going to die. Believers die. Right? So we're not worried about, oh, God reversing our physical death. He's already told us that we're going to be resurrected. But if we are not saved, we're not born again, then it doesn't matter what happens after that? We're going to not see this life and we're going to remain in the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. So physical life is not the point. And that's what people want to focus on. Why do they focus on the physical? Because they can't understand the spiritual. So they only say, well, what, are you going to die? Okay, well, you're going to die. We all die. Believers die, don't they? 
Even mature believers die. If you've done all the things that are right, you've, so you've been saved, you've grown to maturity, you've worked, you're going to die still. So it's not about physical death. And, and that's what you, you have to get to people. And I always use this analogy. Jesus says, I am come that you might have life. That's in John 10. Who needs life? Who is he talking to? Dead people. <laughs> Who Was he in a cemetery or was he talking to live people like I'm talking to? He was talking to people looking at him, right? I am come. He wasn't talking to himself in the cemetery. He was talking to people who needed life. What kind of life, Jesus? What kind of life are you talking about? Spiritual life. That's what Adam lost. We are regaining that back with the new spiritual birth. Just note that. That's important. Because when you talk to people, and this is all hashed out, and they try to tell you, oh, what happened to Adam was only physical. He died. So that's how come man dies. No, physical death is only a result of spiritual death. It is not even the actual penalty. The actual penalty is spiritual death. That's why when you get salvation, you're saved forever. You have crossed over from what? Death to life. John 5, 24. You have crossed over from death to life. And we are running out of time. We have crossed over 9 o'clock. <laughs> we have to finish. We have to finish this next week. Uh, but we're probably three-quarters of the way through, so it's not too bad. Uh, but we're going to continue with um, being born again, because before you're born, this is a preview of next week, before you're born, there is some travail that goes on. There really is. So there's some struggle that happens. And in every baby's birth, there's struggle, there's travail. Maybe some, some mothers had babies and didn't know it. <laughs> I don't know. Some of these young kids that have babies, I and, and, you know, all of a sudden they just had a big shirt on, you know, a big sweatshirt. Next thing you know, they had the baby. Nobody even knew they were pregnant. But they still had travail. They went through it. They just hid it. They hid it. They wore tight clothes. And, and, but there is always travail. The Bible talks about travail before birth. There is a travail that happens before your birth. We'll talk about it next week. Did anybody have any closing comments, questions about what we covered? Nobody's even scratching their head or doing anything because they know that's it. Oh, you have a question. All right. Well, let's stand and we'll close because we, we don't want to impose on your time. We are so glad that you're able to come out tonight and join us. We had a slow start, but boy, the Lord, he, he picked it up really quick, as he always does, doesn't he? Yes. Always does that. So thankful for the Lord. Let's, let's talk to him. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to talk about being born again. What an important, important doctrine that is for us to know. Lord, help us to go back and to look at these verses again. Just meditate on them so that we can own this, that it can be part of our thinking. Not just something that we heard, Father, but something that we, not, we believe is in our souls, in our heart, and we begin to think according to these things. We're so glad, Lord, for those who have come and those who have joined us by conference. We pray for this, the vision of this church, asking, Lord, that you would give us strength, courage, wisdom to go forth, Lord, and to, uh, 
to preach the good news of the gospel to the to every creature, as you have said. So we're we're enlisting those who um, are serious students of the word to learn these things, to comprehend and understand, and allow you, Father, to use them in a special way. That is the unique ministry of this church. And Father, we we pray that you will do this in our hearts. All we have to do, Lord, is surrender to you. Allow you to take control of our thoughts, our mind, and even our time. So we thank you, Father, and we pray for traveling mercies for those who will be traveling. In Christ's name we pray. Next, next week, Lord, bring us here. Amen. Amen.